a new intro yeah. for us that I wrote myself. <laughs> I liked it. I think I stole it from something else. It just came to my mind. All music is stolen these days. Everything. You listen to a song and basically the same four notes are also in a song from the 70s. So you repurposed it. Yeah. From what? I do not know. No. Are they getting royalties on your usage? No. Well, because it was under 30 seconds. <laughs> Uh, this is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hello. And I'm Sabrina. And we have so much to talk about. First of all, Corinne surprised me with the nicest, most amazing, and also <laughs> hilarious gift at my rehearsal dinner the night before my third wedding with Nick. <laughs> And it's a gift from all of you, our listeners, and I was so surprised that I had no idea because, well, you say it. You say what you did. What did you do? Well, while we were at The Bachelorette, I thought it was somewhat good timing to kind of slip it under the radar (laughs) in our Facebook group. And I said, hey, if you have wedding advice for Sabrina and Nick, let us know. Wouldn't this just be a fun little threat? And then I screenshotted all of the answers from everyone and I printed it in a book. In a book. Marriage advice for the two of you. To use on this side until you meet on the other. It is so sweet. And then I pulled out the – because a few of us said little speeches during the rehearsal Mm -hmm. dinner. So I pulled out some of the funnier answers. (laughs) <laughs> to read aloud to everyone, but they were really sweet. They were. And and I can't wait. Nick and I have to sit down and go through it. It is a big book of advice, and I am I just feel so grateful for all of you and love that. Corinne, thank you for bringing our listeners into the wedding. I mean, that's so special. I mean, it was our anniversary, so. Yeah, I'm just the messenger here. I'm just the postal carrier, but everyone else did all the work. Yeah. My favorite was, I think Lauren actually gave the advice, but don't feed the bride dairy. Don't feed the bride dairy. Yeah. <laughs> and did I eat dairy on my wedding weekend? Yes, I did because that it was my weekend. It's your weekend. And also many comments said get Sabrina another cat. So maybe that will help you convince Nick. Yeah. If that's in your future. Well, we, I think we decided that when we move to a home, mm. we will be able to adopt another cat. But you need a little more space yeah. to have some private yeah, private areas of her yes. own. And she's a single child and she likes it that way. As an update for people who have been following the pasta journey, the pastas being the foster kittens that I was fostering, the pastas are now at a cat cafe where they are still available for adoption. But Nick and I figured it was a better place for them because... The organization isn't allowing us to do in-person adoption events or anything. So if they're at this cat cafe, one, they get to have so much fun. It's so cute. I visited them there. And (laughs) I will visit them again this week. They also have so much more in-person, like FaceTime with potential adopters. So as much as I miss them, they're like two miles away from my apartment. So I can visit them whenever I want. Do you remember what the cat cafe is called? The cat cafe. Oh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. And I might be the lounge or the lounge might be on the Venice. Let's see. Oh, I like stalk their Instagram hourly to see if they have updated it. Uh, it's just Cat Cafe. I feel like that's a really genius idea for f- fosters to all be in there. For some reason in my mind, I thought the Cat Cafe and places like that were literally just like someone owned like seven cats and other <laughs> cats just roam around all day. No, it's a nonprofit and they basically want to create a cage-free environment for stray cats and have the opportunity for them to get adopted. So it's one, it's a benefit for anyone who loves cats and wants to go in and snuggle cats for an hour. 
And then it's great for the cats because they aren't in cages. They get to run around all day and be best friends with all the other cats. And I visited them last week, the day after the wedding, because I was like, I miss them so much. (laughs) And I'm not kidding when I say like I came in and I called their names and they came running. break your heart oh i was not well i cried yeah i miss them so much but i think this is good for them and i'm really really hopeful they're so stinking cute i'm like someone's gonna go in there just oh for sure just to want to hang with cats and they're gonna leave feeling like i need to adopt them because they're so perfect playful right now so if you're still interested if any of our listeners live in la are interested in adopting them they are at the cat cafe lounge on Santa Monica and Sepulveda. Wonderful. Go see the pastas, everybody. Go see the pastas. Go visit them. Send them home. Bring them home. Bring them home tonight. <laughs> Speaking of music, your wedding first dance was the best <laughs> first dance I've ever seen in my whole entire life. I think about it every day. Corinne, you're – I'm, like, so excited to get the rest of the photos back because Corinne was the most, like, emotional, reactive person on that day. Every photo I have of her, she's so expressionate. I don't understand what was happening. <laughs> you were I, so I you were having the time of your life. It just everything shone on my face. I was not a good person to be up at the main table where everyone was facing because I was bawling my eyes out or like screaming or cackling with <laughs> laughter. Just it all was coming out because I feel like I've just known you and Nick for so long and I just lost I loved control. It. I loved it. It just yeah. So there's beautiful photos of Sabrina and Nick dancing, having the time of their lives, everyone's clapping, everyone's smiling, and I am bawling. <laughs> <laughs> Or you're like smiling so big that it's just truly ear to ear and you look like a little kid. You're so happy. Screaming. (laughs) Wow. Nick and I whipped out harmonicas during our first dance. It was epic. It was literally like a magic trick too because I'm sure in the video or like photos when I watch back, I'll be able to see when you guys exchanged harmonicas. But in the moment, I didn't see it. And so it just felt like you suddenly whipped it out of thin air and were playing the harmonicas. And I was like, what is happening? It was so great. It was really fun. But I did meet our podcast number one fan at the wedding, which is Nick's dad. Franzuli. (laughs) And I basically found out because he said, it's taking everything in my willpower to not write in my speech because he married you two off. Yeah. He was the officiant. Is that Uh what you said? Yeah. yeah. He was like, it's taking everything in my person to not mention how it's also your podcast (laughs) anniversary. And I said, oh, did Nick tell you? And he goes, no, you said it on the podcast i think you mentioned it twice and i was like oh you listen <laughs> and he's like yeah and then the next day you and i obviously saw each other and were together for hours and then he came up to me and he goes happy anniversary and i immediately <laughs> ran down to you and i was like happy anniversary <laughs> well i didn't even know it was prompted by fran no it was because he said it to me and i was like oh my god i forgot that's so funny and then the day before your wedding so after the rehearsal dinner you guys had welcome drinks mm-hmm. and people came to the property and we were all drinking and snacking and having fun and i'm walking by fran and his friends who he's been friends with since college mm-hmm. And he goes, Crin, Crin, come here. I need to introduce you to one of my friends. So he pulls me to the side. Then he grabs one of his friends, pulls him over. And the guy's like, yeah, so I just recently got into Bigfoot and was so serious. So Fran pairs the two of us together. We must have looked up or like if anyone walked by us, we must have sounded loony because you can't put two people who are really passionate suddenly about Bigfoot together. They're going to get have loud. It be like illogical. <laughs> I mean, logical depending on who you ask. 
I know. Oh, I could have talked to that guy forever. But I was trying to also be respectful and be like, okay, great. And like not spend too much time and have him like pulled aside when he's supposed to be seeing all of his college friends yeah, too, yeah. to talk about Bigfoot and all that. I mean, yes, you can. <laughs> you absolutely can. That's what great about weddings is you bring together people from different aspects of your life and True. make them meet each other. And it's magical to see how they all get along. Oh, I just loved it. I wish I could have talked to – I should have just talked to him for way longer. Okay, I, wait. That's my one regret. Sorry. I just can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. We're famous now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yo, guys. Yo, <laughs> listen to this. is been picked up from the tabloids. <laughs> We may as well have just been featured on People Magazine. That's how it feels. <laughs> Sabrina set up a Google alert in our email. We've been going with this podcast for four years. We've never been mentioned. We get Google alerts. Yeah, never. It's never it's, us. It usually says like two girls in Cincinnati or like murder or ghost somewhere in what blah, blah, blah. It has never has been two girls, one ghost. It's always been like no. iterations of those words spread out somewhere along an article. But Monday morning after the wedding, I wake up and I'm, you know, I'm so tired. We just like had driven all the way home Sunday night, got home late and the place was a mess. So I'm like groggily waking up. And the first thing I do every morning is I check my emails because I hate all the spam emails I get overnight. So I'm looking at our two girls, one ghost email and I see a Google alert. And again, I'm like just ready to delete it until I see ghost penis. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, it's actually about us. Sure enough, who else? <laughs> it was a Daily Star article all about the ghost penis we caught on camera at Lafitte's blacksmith shop in New Orleans, and I freaked out. Corinne is now quoted in a news source <laughs> as saying, "We did not find any normal ghosts. We caught a ghost penis." That's my first official quote ever on the internet. It's about a. a f- phallic image yeah. belonging to a dead person. Yeah. Oh, man. We were calling each other and we were absolutely cracking up. But Dying also one of the things is, is that not only does it quote, obviously, like some of the things we said and mostly what I said since I was covering the episode. Yeah. So they obviously pulled quotes from my research, but they also quoted the phantoms. You guys. You guys. Like your reactions, what you guys commented on that Instagram oh post. Oh, my gosh. So some of you also have possibly the first ever published quote on the internet. <laughs> About a ghost penis. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't stop laughing. And also, I love it because now I feel like anytime another entity, podcast or radio show or whatever it might be, tries to Google and do research on Lafitte's blacksmith shop as haunted, this article is going to come up. I sure hope it does. And I just want... Because, like, you know, when we do research for things, like, we make sure we include all these, like, fun, like, ghost story tidbits of people finding pictures or whatnot. So I really hope the ghost penis lives on. (laughs) Oh, man. And I just really hope it gets picked up by a bunch of other stories. (laughs) I want ghost penis to go viral. Oh, my God. It's just too funny. It's so funny. And it also just really suits our podcast. Like the first time we're ever written about, really, is about a naked body part. We have a sexual innuendo in our title, so it only makes sense that the first ghostly haunting documented, I should say. I mean, I guess we have a lot of EVPs and everything, but true physical form documentation of a photo is of a penis. It's too good. Like you couldn't, if I wrote this in a script, they would be like, this is not real. It's too unbelievable. But it happened. But it happened. <laughs> oh, 
I really want us to have like an R-rated ghost hunting show. Now. I love it. I also just noticed my mouth gets so saliva-y when I'm excited. And I feel like I drool. Yeah, I don't know. You mean one of those dentist chair sucker thingies? Yeah. Suction thing? Yeah. I love those things. I wish I had one. Just for fun? Yeah, I don't know. I really like when they suck all the spit out of my mouth. That's so... (laughs) Is that my fetish? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to talk to Brian. Mm, Cotton mouth. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh. Uh, okay, maybe I should talk to someone about this. Your dentist, maybe so you can borrow can, it. Or my therapist. <laughs> yeah, or your therapist. That might be a better idea. Okay. In the spirit of Nick and I's third wedding, <laughs> and in the spirit of love, I, strangely, usually, I feel like I go darker tendencies, but I've been just floating on this, like, beautiful little, like, marriage cloud for the last two weeks. So I decided to pick a topic for this week, which is technically my birthday episode, of romance, romantic ghost stories. Truly a shocking pick from you. If I had to <laughs> place money, if someone had me guess, gave me a top 10 guesses for what the episode would be for your birthday pick, I never would have guessed this. I would have lost. You would have lost. But here we are. But here we are. And to be fair, a lot of romance love stories end pretty tragically. So it's still... That's so true. At the core of it, there's essence of Sabrina sprinkled in. (laughs) All right. Well, you're first. Let's hear it. Okay. I chose Chatham Manor. And let me tell you about love. If you don't already know... Love is a feeling so deep, so raw, that to have it ripped away from oneself is like striking thy heart with a silver blade. Sabrina Deanna Rogazuli, August 24th, 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Write that in your journal, everyone. (laughs) No, truly. I was, because I was thinking about like all the romantic ghost stories I've heard of in the past, and it's just, I totally understand why there are these women haunting the world, spending the eternity looking for their love and desperately seeking their loved one. Because I truly think if Nick were ripped away from me from some outside force, I would put my wedding dress back on and haunt eternity forever. So the ghost story of Chatham Manor is no different. It's heartbreaking and begins with a Titanic-esque love. Two lovers from different socioeconomic stratas who didn't care about their families or where they came from. All they cared about was being together, but ultimately it was not up to them. But before I break all of our listeners' hearts with a love story for the ages, let me first go into the history of Chatham Manor. Located at 120 Chatham Lane in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Chatham Manor is a stunning Georgian mansion and truly, Corinne, it reminds me like of something that you'd find on Zillow Gone Wild, the Instagram page, oh, because it's I just stunning. And I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, it's beautiful. It. Unfortunately, it's not for sale. It's owned by a national park. But the Chatham Manor was built by William Fitzhugh in 1771, and he named it after a friend of his, William Pitt, who was the Earl of Chatham, which I was like, that is a very, very nice gesture. So, Corinne, <laughs> as a birthday gift to me, 
I'm asking that you promise me to name your future estate after me. Sabrina. The Sabrina Manor. Honestly, because I love such spooky things and because your name <laughs> kind of is spooky, I'm down. And I'll do it for you as and well. And also because I love you. But, <laughs> but it also fits the vibe. I'll do it for you as well. So I'll do like the Corinne Manor or I can also do the VN house. The VN house. I don't know. Whatever you want. This is for you. It's my house. But I'll think about it. The name is for you. Okay, I might do a name change. The Bigfoot House. I might house. change my name. Bigfoot. Big, big, big fort. fort. Big Fort. Oh. <laughs> oh my God, wait, you have to make a fort in the back of your manor, of Sabrina Manor, that's called Big Fort, and it's Bigfoot's Fort. <laughs> Actually, that's such a good idea. You know how people make little fairy items in the backyard? Like little gardens. For the fairies to live in? Yeah, why, why don't people do that for Bigfoot? Big Fort. Big Fort. Let's start it. Hashtag big fort. <laughs> so ugly to say. But I still think that's so interesting. Like why he named it after a friend. I don't know. Good friend, I guess. Anyway, so the Chatham Manor was built upon a 1,280-acre plantation. The main building had 10 rooms, and the estate also included a dairy, a barn, stables, an ice house, a mill, an orchard, a fishery, and a racetrack. But the manor is not remembered in history for its grandiose property. It is remembered for its involvement in the Civil War, for the parties that Mr. William Fitzhugh threw, and the high-profile guests that all came through the home. So, I don't know, maybe you recognize the names like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. Dang. I don't know. Mr. President. Ring a bell? William Fitzhugh's daughter, Molly, even married George Washington's step-grandson, which is like a lot of words to say. But if you think about it, it makes sense. It took me a while. But maybe it takes you a second, and I'm dumb. (laughs) No! What? Where is this coming from, Sabrina? I don't know. I'm finally back to civilization and forgot how to speak to humans. No, you're brilliant. So William Fitzhugh, he loved to throw a good party. He spared no expense. He loved to wine and dine his guests. But unfortunately for Fitzhugh, he was a little irresponsible with his money and eventually no longer could afford the lifestyle he was living. He basically blew it all on his parties and his friends. So he still had money, but he was just like, in order for me to keep my money, I need to move away from this house and no longer throw parties. So he basically left Chatham Manor in 1806, but continued to run the plantation from afar. And as was very common during this time, Fitzhugh had hundreds of slaves working on his property. And he exploited them for their work. And in 1805, a number of the slaves actually rebelled and overpowered the overseer and four others. And they whipped the overseer and made an attempt to overthrow the manor and almost did. But unfortunately, an armed group stopped the rebellion and they killed two men who were trying to escape. They then executed a man and deported two others. So after the rebellion, Fitzhugh decided to sell the manor and Major Churchill Jones a former Continental Army officer purchased the plantation for $20,000 in 1806. And I feel like usually I look up and see how much that costs in today's money, but I did not do this for that. I feel like for some reason that feels like a lot of money. Let me look it up. Oh my gosh. What is it? Oh, it's not that much. I mean, it is. It's about 433338 today. Oh, when you look at the property and the house, the size of it, I would have thought of Today, it feels like it would have been listed for, I don't know. Millions? 4.2 yeah, million. Which maybe it would. True. Because, yeah, there's a lot more to calculate with like real estate value and everything. Exactly. 
But so Major Churchill Jones and his family went on to own the property for the next 66 years. 66? I don't know. Spooky? (laughs) I laugh at myself. Okay. His daughter, Hannah Jones Coulter, inherited the home where she lived with her daughter, Janet. And incredibly, Hannah and Janet were very against slavery, and they tried to free the 92 men, women, and children who were enslaved by her father. But it basically, due to Virginia and, like, state laws and everything – They made it very, very difficult for Hannah to do that. And so when Hannah was on her deathbed, she wrote it into her will that they would all be free and she left enough money for all of them to have safe passage into freedom. But when Hannah passed, the house did not go to her daughter, Janet, because she was disabled. And so Hannah's younger sister, Betty Jones, and her husband, James Horace Lacey, who was a Confederate sympathizer, Ended up getting the will to the house or the deed to the house and took the will that Hannah had left freeing all the slaves to court. And basically the court denied any of them a chance of freedom, which is just awful and tragic because Mm. Hannah tried so badly to free them. But there is one really beautiful story that I wanted to leave you with that will lift your, not leave you with, but to give that lifts your spirits because I also think it should be told. But so when all of this happens, All these women, men, children who are promised their freedom and believe that they're about to get their freedom are struck down by the court and are made to stay. And when this all happened, a woman by the name of Ellen Mitchell, who was enslaved at Chatham, was obviously and very fairly so distraught and spoke very vocally against the injustice towards James Lacey, who now owned the home. And James basically was like, I don't want to deal with you, and sold her to a slave trader. But the slave trader wasn't sure what to do with her, so he granted her a 90-day pass to leave Fredericksburg with his church. And for those 90 days, Ellen Mitchell traveled around and spoke with churches and political groups of her injustices and what happened at Chatham Manor. And in this time, she raised enough money to buy her and her children's freedom, which was $1,000. So after those 90 days... She marched back to Fredericksburg with the money. She marched to Chatham Manor and confronted James Lacey and bought her family freedom. And Lacey was so impressed that he freed Ellen's mother as well. And Ellen Mitchell and her family moved to Ohio and started a laundry service. And apparently to this day, the Mitchell family still lives in Ohio. Like the descendants and everyone still live in Ohio, which I just think is an incredible story that this woman fought for her freedom and bought her freedom for her family. Wow. But Chatham Manor continued to exploit other people of color and own them as slaves. And by the time of the Civil War, James Lacey decided to leave Chatham and serve the Confederacy as an officer. And he left his wife, Betty, and their kids behind at Chatham. But in the spring of 1862, Union troops arrived and forced the family out of the manor. And for the remainder of the Civil War, Chatham Manor was occupied by the Union Army and used as a headquarters. And then, of course, civil war ensued and the Chatham Manor fell into disrepair and became the site of many horrific and gory deaths. The Union troops lost horribly in the Battle of Fredericksburg and some other battles, specifically the Battle of Fredericksburg. They suffered 12,600 casualties. And during that time, many of the injured and dead men were brought back to Chatham Manor for aid. And for days, army surgeons operated inside the house trying to save the wounded Union soldiers. Oh, wow. So they said that, like, for days following this battle, there were just, like, screams and groans and, like, horrible sounds emanating from – probably, I'm sure, people died. So many. I mean, 12,600 casualties in total from that battle. And that means by the end of all the surgeons trying to save people, you know? 
So the carnage was apparently so vile that Walt Whitman, who's the poet, he visited the Chatham Manor in order to find his brother. And he wrote that outside the house at the front of a tree, there was a heap of amputated feet, legs, arms, and hands, about a load for one horse cart. There were several dead bodies that lied near, each covered with its own brown woolen blanket. And then the bodies were buried on Chatham property. And even after the Civil War, like they, I think they relocated the bodies to an actual cemetery. But for years after the Civil War ended, bodies were continually being discovered on the property. Just because there were so many dead bodies, they were buried like all over the property. So it's believed that there are so many of them buried on the property that have not yet been found. So by the end of the Civil War in 1865, Chatham Manor was severely damaged and there was very little for Lacey and his wife to come back to. Over 750 panes of glass had been broken. Blood stained the floor. So no matter how hard they tried to clean the home, there was still blood on the floor. And much of the interior wood had actually been cut off and used as firewood for warmth. And everyone described it more as a graveyard than a home. So basically after that, they left the house abandoned. It passed through many different owners until the 1920s when Daniel and Helen DeVore undertook the restoration and actually made most of the significant changes and restored it to what, for the most part, you see today. And as a result of their efforts, the house was placed among Virginia's finest homes. And while there are many horrors that took place at Chatham Manor, I'm sure you're like, of course, there's probably ghosts of Union soldiers that are haunting the ground Mm -hmm. or the slaves. But what does that have to do with love, Sabrina? Wasn't that what you picked for this week's episode? Yeah. Well, you'd be correct. Because believe it or not, there are no soldiers or no slaves haunting Chatham Manor. There is only one ghost that seems to be haunting the home, and it is the Lady in White. And in order to understand the Lady in White and how she has anything to do with love, we must rewind back to the late 1700s when William Fitzhugh, the original owner of Chatham Manor, lived there. And as you remember, he was a very giving and hospitable man to his friends. And during that time he lived there, a friend of his from England requested to send his troubled daughter to come live with the Fitzhughes. Because, as the story goes, back in England, this girl had fallen in love with a man thought to be far below her class level. And he was a dry salter. And she had come from a wealthy family. So in an effort to break them up forever... Her father sent her to America to stay at Chatham Manor with the Fitzhughes. But her father didn't realize that his daughter and her lover were so determined to see their love through that the young man actually followed her to America. For weeks, they met in secret. They made a plan to disappear together. But one day, a maid overheard their intentions. And unsure of what to do, the maid sought the aid of another guest that was staying at Chatham Manor. And that guest just so happened to be George Washington. Apparently, Washington was not a lover of secret love and didn't believe in romance because he intervened and sought a way to stop the elopement. So one night, when this girl went to sneak out at night and meet her lover, she was instead met by Washington himself. He caught her and confronted her. And while she demanded to know where her lover was, Washington never told her. And in fact, no one knows what happened to him. No one. There's no record. Did someone kill him? 
Did they send Why him away? Why is George Washington sticking his nose where it doesn't need to be? Why right? is he suddenly so involved in some other person's drama and affairs? Like, really, you've got nothing else going on? I am disappointed because I love love and love should see no boundaries and love should happen no matter what. And I'm a romantic, I guess. So I guess Washington's not. I don't know. So no one knows what happened to her lover. Washington sends the young girl back to England where she was forced to marry another young man arranged and approved by her father. And as legend says, she never smiled another day in her life. And she spent the rest of her life still trying to track down her one true love to no avail. And she died on June 21st of 1790. And on that very night, there was a report at Chatham Manor of a spectral apparition in a long white dress emitting an eerie glow wandering the gardens of the manor. Since that night, this woman has made it her mission to return to Tata Manor every seventh year on the day of her death, June 21st, in search of her true love. So she returns between 12 p.m. and 12 a.m. and takes what has been called her ghost walk, She walks the path along the river to the spot where she was expected to meet her lover on that one night when Washington so rudely intervened. And basically, I was like looking at the history of the walks and people have like tried to catch her on camera. And there was even in 2007, she was due to make her ghost walk. And they set up like all the documentation, cameras, lights. It was a big group of paranormal investigators, but she did not show. And that was the only year that she's recorded as not showing. And then she was seen briefly in 2014 on June 21st. And then her next appearance was supposed to be on June 21st, 2021, which was not so long ago. But I couldn't find anything about it or if she appeared. I tried looking everywhere. So if you know, please let us know. I'd love to think that she did not appear because she found her lover and they've gone on to the afterlife. You know what's interesting? So it's June 21st every year, you said? Yeah. Or every seven years? Every seven years. June 21st. First is summer solstice. So it's actually the longest day of the year in terms of sunlight. Ooh. It's kind of ironic that the ghost is showing itself in the smallest amount of darkness when really yeah. usually we attribute darkness with seeing spirits. With spirits. Interesting. It is also very, very sad and strange that she can only come every seven years. It almost makes me think like she strangely made a deal with the devil, you know? Right. Because it's- Or is there something we don't understand about like time loops in yeah it's possible the astral world it's possible but what's so weird about it is like why can i'm just going to use the ghost penis as reference why can that ghost show us its penis whenever it wants (laughs) and poor lady in white at chatham manor can only appear and search for her love which is a very pure and innocent and should be rewarded desire But she can only do it every seven years on that one day. She only gets one day every seven years to find her true love. And what if he only has one day every seven years, but it's not on June 21st, so they'll never find each other? No. Oh, my gosh. This actually is reminding me a bit of the listener story I picked out. (laughs) So excited. But you know what you're making me think of? Have you seen Shutter Island? Of course. Yeah, one of my favorite movies. Same. But you know how, but I don't want to spoil it for other people. But I'm going to. I mean, it came out how many years ago? I'm, come on. I know, but it's just so good. Okay, but basically at the end, you find out that this guy, this detective, 
is not actually a detective. He's a patient at the hospital and they're just letting him live out his fantasy. It makes me wonder what if she's in a similar situation where they're like, you're not like you've passed, you need to move on. He's not there. And every seven years, they basically like go through this cycle of just like, all right, fine. Just like let her see it again. Let her know that he's not there. Send her down. But he must be dead too. So like, how can they not find each other in the afterlife? It know, feels torturous. Maybe he is down here. Just also, oh, what? What if she's been cursed and every seven years she can come down and look for her love and every seven years he is there, but he's a different person because his soul's been reincarnated oh. into someone else. And so she has to search and figure out who it is every seven Why? years. Why? She's already been so there. punished. Why is she cursed? This is I not fair. It's not. Love isn't fair. Life isn't Love fair. should be fair. It should be. But here we are. But here we are. Also, not to turn this into the Shutter Island podcast, but also, isn't the ending a little ambiguous? It's like, what are you going to believe? It's just like Inception, right? right? Where you're like, wait a second. Wait a second. Because it's so, like, in my mind, they made him crazy. Right. Because all the other patients slipping him clues, saying certain things. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It's the unreliable narrator. I love movies like that. Yeah. Where you just... Oh, speaking of... They don't know what's happening, so neither do you. You should watch The Father if you've not seen it with Olivia Coleman and... What's his name? What is that on? I be- It was on the plane, so fly somewhere to watch it. It's the only place okay. you can watch it. No, I don't know. Ooh, Anthony Hopkins is in it. Yeah, and he won Best Actor. It's so 2020. good. Oh, wow. And it's the exact same thing. Unreliable narrator. It's from his perspective, and he has dementia, and it's like things are changing in his life, and he's so confused. And then so you're confused. You also don't know what's real and what's not. It's really, mm-hmm. really good. It's like a beautiful mind. Yeah. See, some of the best movies – isn't that funny that some of the best movies have this theme? Because they're trippy. They are. They make you think. They make you think. But the lady in white, we don't know why she's there, but she is in only seven years. Yeah. Oh, I guess I should wrap up my story. I To wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought – I wasn't sure if we were done. Well, there's a lot of discussion to be had about poor lady in white and why she cannot find her love. But basically, just as a final, if you do want to visit Chatham Manor, it's part of Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park and is open to the public. Many of the main house rooms have been restored and you can take a stroll through the historic property and perhaps catch a glimpse of the infamous lady in white forever searching for her one true love. Wow. I'm sad that she doesn't actually get to be with him in the afterlife. I know. It's so upset. I mean, maybe if she doesn't show up again in seven years, so June 21st, 2028, if she doesn't show up again, Perhaps that means either she's been reincarnated or she's found her love. Right. Maybe you have multiple soulmates. Maybe there are a few people and then she, whether it be a romantic or a platonic love, she finds another soulmate and continues on with them. True. And hopefully it can work this time and no Washington or father trying to pull them apart. No. No, that makes me mad. I forgot I was mad at George Washington, but now I am again. (laughs) What if? Okay, let's try to make it sweet real quick. Okay. This requires something dark. So what if Washington and all his meddling mm-hmm. killed the lover and they send her back to England and she marries this other guy and she has kids, which apparently there were some stories that said she had like 10 kids with this new husband. And one of her kids is her soulmate reincarnated because soulmates come in many different ways. You can have, right. them, you know, so like she had him a part of her life, but as a child. Right. Could be a dog. 
could be your pet cat, could be your grandchild, yeah, your best friend. So maybe they weren't apart forever. Oh. But she just didn't know it. Well, that's a nice thought. She just didn't know it. Yeah. Oh, that's also sad. I know. <laughs> <laughs> to not have the realization when they're right there and they're such a big part of your life. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Okay, so similar to you, Sabrina, I picked a story that's a little bit more about forbidden love because we grew up on stories like that. Like we had to read Romeo and Juliet and all of those sort of tales, watch those sort of movies. It was a theme in our lives. And so I decided that instead of a tale like Romeo and Juliet, I'm going to make you think of Thomas and Lucinda because they have maybe a somewhat similar story, but spoiler alert, a happier ending. (gasps) Oh, wow. Love to hear it. Back in the 1890s. So let's venture on back to meet Thomas of Thomas and Lucinda. Thomas Rowe was a young Irish lad, and he was sent to study in England by his grandfather after his parents had passed away. So he was essentially an orphan, but was taken in by his grandfather and went off to school in England. And there in England, Thomas took up a really strong interest in the opera, and he surrounded himself with this elegant life of those who would frequent the theater and he'd go often and he really, really enjoyed it. Wow. And one night, Thomas was like, yeah, this is a good night, (laughs) I think, to head to the opera. So he goes and he purchases a ticket to the play Maritana. And boy, did he see a show (gasps) that night. Ooh. Because the female lead was absolutely captivating. Ooh. Her voice, her beauty, her talent. Thomas was infatuated She was gorgeous. He instantly fell in love. Love at first sight, you could say, for our man Tom. And this love was not unrequited because the singer who played the female lead in this musical, in this opera, the singer was named Lucinda. And she met Thomas. And she was like, hubba hubba, I am (laughs) into you. And the two were just immediately in love. They would meet in secret by a fountain and they would ooh and ah over each other. And they really just were... They were like, this is it for us. Like, we are in love. We can never be without one another. And let's just start thinking about a life together and planning for the future. And they're giving each other pet names. So Lucinda, it's actually really cute. Lucinda's pet name was Maritana because that was the opera she was in. And Thomas was Don Caesar after a character in the same play. And so as lovers do, they're starting to make plans for their future. They want to elope and they want to live in a pink castle by the sea. Pink! That's their dream. Wow. So they begin to make plans. They begin to plan their trip to America where they would build this beautiful life together Mm -hmm. in this pink castle by the sea. But they never got to get that Oh no, why? Because Lucinda's parents, they learn of her sneaking off and meeting with this guy and they are like, no, you are not going to be hanging out with him and you are definitely not going to be moving to America to run off with this guy. Hell no. But did they hear so about they the pink castle? They clearly don't. They didn't know. They didn't know what their plans were. Ugh, it's so sad. I mean, I'm mad at her parents too. So Lucinda, she basically is taken, almost kidnapped by her parents and brought back to Spain. And so she's kept away from him. She's essentially like hidden away from him. So it's, I don't know. I feel like Lucinda should get therapy. <laughs> we all should. She would benefit from that. From, from so she's Rapunzel, basically. She's literally Rapunzel and I feel horrible for her. 
But alas, there's no happy ending. She doesn't run away to America. She doesn't escape her parents and find him again. She doesn't fake her death by poison. None of that. She's just stuck. And so is Thomas. And he's absolutely heartbroken. And when school was out, he had to return back to Ireland. So she's now back in Spain. He's now in Ireland. But he never stopped thinking about Lucinda. And he would write to her. He'd write to her every single day. Multiple. So the notebook. I literally just wrote, but just like Noah's letters to Allie in the notebook, the letters never got to Lucinda. Mm. They were mailed back unopened. Her parents would just send them right back in the mail. They would stop her from ever knowing that he wrote to her and thought of her every day. So Thomas, he moves to America eventually. He has to try to move on with his life. He can't just sit in Ireland thinking about Lucinda every day when there's huge barriers and it just seems like it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So he moves to America and he actually becomes quite successful and very wealthy. This guy's doing really well for himself. And he meets another woman who he fancies and they get married, though Lucinda is still on his mind. It is his first love and a love that really didn't have any conclusion. It was never resolved. So it always lingered there in his mind and in his heart. But alas, he's in America and he's living down in Florida. And he ends up purchasing 80 acres of land on the shores of Florida on what we now know as St. Petersburg Beach. So this guy, I think he did pretty well for himself. So he took that land, he divided it up into a bunch of different lots to probably essentially build or or sell off, and he named the streets after characters and places (gasps) in Maritana, the play. No. And just like he and Lucinda had dreamed of, he then, in the 20s, built a big pink house by the sea. It was a Mediterranean-style 10-story hotel. It's still there today. You can look at pictures. It's seriously unique. It's actually, I think it's very pretty. Wait, and I think I've driven past this. Have you? The hotel's called Don Caesar. Okay, I absolutely have. Every year in high school, we went to St. Petersburg, Florida for spring training for lacrosse. Oh. And drove past this multiple times. And they always like, oh, that cute pink building in Florida. The building, the hotel, the giant hotel. Oh, my God. I remember this so clearly. That's so funny. Also, I'm totally butchering the pronunciation of this hotel. It's Don Cesar, not Caesar. Sorry. Don Cesar. Oh, it's really cute inside. Oh, I wish you had known and you could have stopped in. I know. Well, we were driving in like those big vans with like 10 lacrosse players in the back. Oh, that's so, oh my gosh, you were so close. Oh man, it's so pretty. It's beautiful. Yeah, so it's absolutely beautiful. And it's like right on the beach, basically. Yeah. And on the ground floor of the hotel, when Thomas built it, he replicated the courtyard in the fountain where he and Lucinda would meet in secret. So it was an homage to his forbidden love, to his one true love, his first love. That is so sweet. Did his current love know that this was? (laughs) So I don't know too much about their marriage. What I did read was that they were kind of estranged. And actually, when he eventually did die, he had tried on his deathbed, essentially, or or when he was ill and, and being taken care of by the doctor, he was trying to actually will the hotel to his employees, to all of the staff to share it together. But the doctor was like, he's too sick. He doesn't know what he's (gasps) talking about. 
And so his oral wish never was confirmed as an actual change uh. to the will. So his estranged wife actually did end up getting the hotel after he passed away. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. I don't think the two of them were like vibing as a couple too much. Vibing. So <laughs> I'm not sure if she was even like present or around the pink hotel or if this is actually a, a tragic love story for her too. Maybe she really did love him and mm. then he just never got past it and we're only hearing his side of things. Yeah. I mean, it must be hard to live in the shadow of his one true love. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm not sure about them, but what I do know is that this hotel is basically built for Lucinda with Lucinda in mind for him to reenact, recreate, and feel the energy of Lucinda's love that he once had back in England. And just like his attempt at life and love with Lucinda, his ownership of the hotel became a bit rocky and unsteady. So the stock market crashed a year after the hotel opened, and then the next couple decades were pretty challenging with different things like prohibition, Mm. all of that. There's just a lot going on. Hurricanes, it's in Florida. A lot of stuff happened that challenged him and his hotel, but he did end up getting to keep it. So he kept the hotel and he would walk at night along the shoreline, hoping for his love to have heard of the pink house by the sea that he had made for them and to come stay with him. Then one day, Thomas does actually hear news of Lucinda. She had passed away. And on her deathbed, she had written a letter addressed to him to my beloved Don Cesar. And it read, time is infinite. I wait for you by our fountain. To share our timeless love, our destiny is time. Stop. Oh, I just have chills. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And on May 5th, 1940, Thomas got to meet her once again on the other side when he passed away. The hotel was passed through many hands right after his passing, his estranged wife. And it served a few purposes outside of the original intent of being a hotel. But then, flash forward to the 1970s, it's purchased again, it's restored, it's brought back to its state of being a world-class hotel. And that is when Thomas and Lucinda's love story continued. Some of the original staff had stayed at the property or reworked at the property when it opened as a hotel again. And after Thomas's passing, and once the hotel was brought back in the 70s, they claimed to smell Thomas again. (gasps) At the time when he was sick, his doctor had actually prescribed him medical cigarettes for his asthma so that he could inhale the medicine from cigarettes into his lungs. Oh. But it was this really gross, weird, distinct smell from these medical cigarettes. And the staff would walk into rooms and in hallways, and they would just be blasted by the scent. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Thomas. He's there. There's no other explanation. And then during renovations, construction workers, they would frequently ask who that white haired man is that keeps asking them questions about the renovations. So he was there. He was appearing. He was like, what are you doing? What's this? What's that? Oh my gosh. He was involved. He knew that things were changing. Which is aware. Very fair. It's his place. Yes. Exactly. And so when the hotels reopened officially and guests come to stay, sightings of Thomas become more frequent. He would often appear in the kitchen. Sometimes he would be in the freezer. So the kitchen staff would open up the freezer. They would see his face and then he would quickly vanish. But that's probably the scariest encounter you could have with Thomas because the rest of them are really, really lovely. Okay. He mostly just watches over the hotel. He protects it and he intervenes when need be. The hotel is a very popular spot for hosting weddings too. So the whole Ooh. hotel is like super romantic. 
They're always having weddings there. But with weddings, sometimes comes heightened emotion, sometimes drama, sometimes people becoming more involved than they should Mm -hmm. be. And one time there was a mother of a bride who was just nonstop complaining about everything, complaining about the venue, complaining about the flowers, blaming the hotel for everything that had gone wrong. And she's there and she is yelling at the on-site florist, the florist that comes essentially with the hotel. And Thomas hears this in his ghostly state. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let one of my hotel's employees be yelled at like that. They deserve respect. (gasps) So – He then goes and he shoves all of the shelves in the fridge that were holding the flowers for that woman's daughter's wedding. Sends them crashing to the floor. And the woman immediately is like, (gasps) spooked, drops it and lets it all go and does not yell at the floor. Another time, there was a wedding journalist who was staying over for a few days. And this wedding journalist was writing a piece on the hotel as a wedding venue. And after the first night, she goes downstairs to the front desk and she sees the director of guest services, Susan, and she asks her if there are any ghosts on site. And Susan's like, yes, absolutely, (laughs) we have a ghost. Why do you ask? And the woman's like, well, it's because last night when I was sleeping, this man appeared in my room and he told me, do not let her go on the ledge. And Susan's like, huh, that's super odd. That's very odd. Yeah, I don't know. She's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, weird. Sorry about that. So strange, they thought, but then they moved on. And actually, one other piece of info about this encounter is that Susan had asked what the guy looked like and the journalist, she was trying to explain it but couldn't really. So she started to grab a piece of paper and sketch out the person and it looked a lot like Thomas. So Susan's like, oh, it's got to be Thomas. Whoa. But then a few days later, this woman's still on site. The journalist is still on site getting all the content for her piece. And this time she has a photographer and a model there with her (gasps) to get some photos for the article. And I believe I read somewhere that it was Brides Magazine that she worked for, but that could be wrong. Okay. So they're shooting in the penthouse on the rooftop patio. The photographer then asks the model to get up on the ledge so that he can get a good shot of her up on the ledge of the penthouse. Mm. And just then, the journalist is like, oh, my God, that's what, ledge. That's what? Don't let her get up on the ledge. It was a warning. So she pauses everything before the model can hoist herself up. And she's like, no, 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 stop. We got to examine this. This could be really unsafe. Let's look at the ledge. And so they go over to the ledge. And the mortar had begun to crumble. So any significant pressure or oh my gosh. on that siding would have caused a bunch of it. It's not like the whole thing would collapse, but a bunch of it to chip off. And likely, whoever was standing on it, the model in this case, would have lost her balance and likely fallen. So Thomas saved her life. So not only is he saving guests, but he's also helping provide world-class service. So Susan, she said, and she's the director of guest services, remember, she said that the elevators in the hotel are so slow. Like you click the floor and you're just waiting there forever for the hotel elevator to come. So it's pretty annoying. It's an old building, old hotels. But that being said, whenever the staff is rushing around to help grab something for a guest, if they need to get something for a guest, a guest needs something immediately. Whenever it has to do with guest experience, The elevators always seem to be there, ready, and they open on their own to make sure no one has to call the elevator down. He just opens the doors. He knows that they're coming. And similarly, when staff is carrying, when they're going around carrying really heavy full trays of food, dishes, whatever it be, oftentimes doors will open on their own to let them through. So he's holding the door open to help them as they're carrying a bunch of stuff. Wow. He's also especially active. Love him. Thomas. most helpful. He's just so great. I mean, not only was he great in life, it seems, but in death, he couldn't be a better hotel Yeah, he's manager. so helpful. Yeah, he's a great owner. 
<laughs> Even though he really doesn't own it anymore. RIP. So when he was alive, he had once lived on the fifth floor of this hotel. So he's often seen on the fifth floor. And there are a lot of mysterious phantom noises that occur there often. And some of the noises are attributed to potential other spirits. Because in the few decades where it wasn't a hotel, I think it was a hospital at one time. And the army had used it. So there were a few other purposes and potential deaths mm-hmm. in the property. So maybe they're not all him. But for the most part, he's the one that's spotted. You also don't really have to be in the hotel to spot him either. So there's a woman. She was from Pennsylvania and she had gone down to the hotel with her husband. She was starting a temp job to work there as a receptionist. So she's down on the beach with her husband and she looks up back at the hotel from the sand and she sees a man with a white linen suit and a Panama hat. And she points out the man to her husband, kind of making a joke like, oh, look, it's Panama Jack. (laughs) And her husband, he can't see the man. And she's like, okay, maybe you just have bad vision. This guy's like out of sight line for my husband. So she's like, whatever, moving on. But later that day, she goes to her new hire orientation at the hotel and a picture of Thomas Rowe, the original (gasps) owner and builder of this big pink mansion by the sea is shown and it is exactly who she had seen and pointed out and made a joke about to her husband wow so thomas he truly is still the owner of the hotel in his heart because he strolls the grounds he greets guests sometimes he stands at the front to smile and nod as guests arrive but if anyone goes up to approach him and ask any question or do anything else he'll then disappear (laughs) So while Thomas is often seen by guests seemingly working and helping fellow employees, he does make some time for his love, Lucinda. Okay, go on. The two of them are often seen (gasps) holding hands, strolling the property, often through the courtyard. Thomas is in his classic linen suit with his Panama suit, his Panama hat. And Lucinda is in a traditional period-style Spanish dress most frequently. I'm so happy. Aren't you? Ugh. I knew this was how it was going to end because that's what you said, but... Yes. It's just magical. It is. Because she found him. And that's true. Like, there was no ocean, no sea, no people that could get in the way. She went all the way from Spain, her spirit, to Florida to be with him in the house he built for her, the pink house by the sea with the courtyard and all of their <gasps> memories together replicated there in their now safe Now they're living their life together. Yes. And when they are together, they are very much in their own little world. So while Thomas, when he's seen by guests and by hotel employees, he's often, you know, interacting and very aware of what's going on and being a helper. When he's with Lucinda, it's just him and Lucinda. One guest, here's an example of this. One guest had checked into a room where, and this is a little sad, he checked into a room where he had stayed every year with his wife. And his wife had recently passed away. He wanted to keep up with their tradition and to honor her. So he checks into the room and he gets into his swimsuit and he heads down to the beach. And when he gets there, he was less than pleased with how crowded the beach was. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to post up on the sand. I'm just going to walk down to the water's edge and put my toes in the water. Mm -hmm. So he walks down and as he's walking, he notices an older couple walking ahead of them. And they seem a little bit out of place because a lot of the people on the beach are a bit younger when this man was here. Okay. So he sees this couple and they look like a nice older couple, very in love. They're half in the sand, half in the water. And the man is wearing a white hat with a linen colored suit and his pants rolled up to not get the water on his pants. 
And the woman is in this gorgeous pink caftan dress. And the man is like, wow, and watches them captivated by their captivation with one another. And he said the air around them, it just felt regal. Like when he was looking at them, it just felt like they were classy and romantic. And there was a lot happening that he's not really a part of, but he gets to witness. It felt special. And so he observes them and his gaze as he's looking at them, checking them out, watching them together, his gaze starts to wander down to the sand. And then he notices that they don't have feet. Ah! The couple is not walking. There are no prints being created in the sand. They are floating. Floating. Floating along the shoreline. And so this guy is now looking around to see if anyone else around him has spotted this apparently ghostly couple. And then he turns back to look at them and they're gone. The couple had vanished. And so this man, instead of being super freaked out by what he experienced, he actually returned home after his stay at the hotel and he told his children about what he had seen. And they were like, okay, whatever, dad. But he was like, no, 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 this is real. I truly did see this. And someday. Day, that's going to be me and your mom reunited and forever Aww. soulmates. Oh. So in the end, Thomas and Lucinda finally got their timeless love in a pink house by the sea. A beautiful love story that just so happens to also be a ghost story. And that is it. It's so beautiful, but it makes me so sad for the people in my story because it's like, how did Lucinda and Thomas find each other? I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. It's unfair. I mean, I'm glad that they are. I'm not taking that away from them. I'm so glad that they are. But it's just, it's this tragedy of the paranormal that we don't understand. Is like why one story, it seems like the paranormal works this way. And then another story we hear, it's like, just kidding. Pivot. It's pivot. Pivot. <laughs> pivot. <laughs> it's just tragic and doesn't work the same way. And I just don't understand it. Where are the it rules? Makes me wonder if... Because we've talked about this before. When you cross over, is there something that happens? Is there a decision that's made where you can say, like, I want to stay. I have unfinished business. I want to be a ghost. Do you have that option or can you move on? So it makes me wonder if... Perhaps in your story, the woman was like, no, I don't want to move on. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to meet me here. We were soulmates. We're in love. And so she chose to stay. But perhaps he was like, wow, this place is freaking fantastic. (laughs) I'm ready to continue on. Maybe they just didn't make the same decision. Maybe. And that is what put them in two different spots where they can't seem to find one another again. Maybe. But the seven years thing really bugs me. Yeah, the seven years thing is weird. And it also feels a little bit cruel. And it also feels a little bit like if you already did all of the hard time on earth, why do you have all of these ropes that you have to jump over? Why are there all these things restricting you from just doing whatever you want and finding whoever you want in the afterlife? I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe... He was a star seed and she was a regular old earthling. <gasps> so he went and back when to they his crossed other over, planet. They crossed over. Yep. Totally different mm. afterlives. Hmm. Feels like there should be one afterlife regardless of where you're from. I don't know. Guess we'll find out eventually. <laughs> I don't make the rules. But I, you know what? Let's focus on Lucinda and Thomas because they're a beautiful, happy story. And I love to think that you can go visit the hotel and watch the two of them walk along the beach or float along the beach and float into the sunset together. They're in love. I do wonder if there is one particular room that they stay in, if they do have maybe on the fifth floor, perhaps where he used to spend a lot of his time. I wonder if they've taken up. Yeah. I wonder if the hotel never like books that one room because they know it's his room. (gasps) Oh. 
Oh, I wonder. I also wonder if there are any special requests that they feel from the ghost. Like if they need a glass of water by the bedside table. Some or- strawberry covered, cho- or, whoa, some chocolate covered strawberries, I mean. <laughs> strawberry covered chocolate. Honestly, that makes it sound like there's more chocolate than strawberry. <laughs> it's strawberry flavored chocolate over chocolate chocolate. Yeah, just throw it in a champagne <laughs> glass. Beautiful. Love it. Okay, I have a ghost story from our listener, Katie, called Most Haunting Love Story. Hi, girls. I love ghost stories and have quite a few to share, but here's my favorite. It's a super sappy love story like Nicholas Sparks level romance with a twist. So, Melody and Axel, I've changed their names for privacy, met as teenagers, and it was love at first sight for Axel. The morning after he saw Melody, he trekked 11 miles on a hot summer day to visit her, but Melody refused to come downstairs and suggested that Axel go back home. Instead of going straight home, Axel politely asked for a glass of water and sat on the porch to cool off. Eventually, Melody ventured downstairs, and suddenly they were inseparable. This part of the story is important because you have to understand that their love was epic, the kind of love most people only envy. Fast forward a few years, and they had a baby, my husband. Melody finished nursing school, Axel worked on his music career, and they were able to scrape by and move into their very own apartment. Melody worked crazy hours and would wander around the house in a bit of a fog sometime, which is why Axel was used to her kind of appearing at random times. So one day, as he sat playing guitar on the sofa, Axel felt a presence beside him and looked up, but Melody wasn't there. Weird, but not scary. Another time, he thought he heard her in the kitchen and called out to her, only to realize she was upstairs fast asleep. And up until now, this is typical spooky stuff, but it escalated. One night, he woke up and saw Melody standing beside the bed, backlit by the moon. Only, it wasn't Melody. It had her long hair, but it was too wild. It had her eyes, but they were too intense. Her teeth were too sharp, and her fingers were clawed. Plus, Axel could see through her. (laughs) And the real Melody was fast asleep beside him. But Axel realized the spirit was trying to imitate her. This ghost was trying to be her. He spoke up and banished her, offended more than scared. The spirit left and things seemed to go back to normal. Except the spirit continued to try to trick Axel by presenting as Melody in less direct ways. And the house seemed darker, less welcoming, maybe angry. Concerned about their baby son, but not extremely religious, they baptized my husband in the kitchen sink of the haunted house. But the spirit was not interested in the baby. Whatever it was, it definitely had a crush on Axel. Eventually, Axel and Melody moved to a new apartment, and for months, there was nothing. But then, the spirit found them. When my husband tells this story, he always makes it sound like maybe the spirit was searching for Axel for months. But Detroit is a big city, and it took a while. When the spirit reappeared, Axel was alone, resting on the sofa, and the spirit came to him, again, as Melody, but weaker. This time, Axel was very clear and said that this was not the space for the spirit and that it needed to leave. It was not welcome nor wanted in their home. He was able to set boundaries and banish the spirit. What do you think it was? Doppelganger? Succubus? Ghost? Demon? Something else? Also, one more really quick story. My husband told me that his great-grandmother was a kind of bruja, and as a big storm was approaching, she took a butcher knife, braced her legs and shoulders as she stood on her front porch and sliced at the sky. The storm then dissolved before it ever reached them. I've never heard of anyone using a knife to cut a storm or harness the weather. 
I know it isn't a ghost story, but I thought your listeners might know what she was practicing or have a similar story. Love the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing, Katie. This is so creepy. This is so <laughs> paranormal activity. You know, Love when they go into the attic and they find the photo from like the girl's childhood and now she's an adult, like this demon, this thing has been following her. But this is creepy because it's manifesting, like it's trying to become who he chose to spend his life with. Mm-hmm. And even though it knows that he knows that it's not her, it's still it's still trying. It's still yeah. putting in the effort. It's not giving up. And which is so disturbing. It sounds like just based on the first I mean, granted, it's been years since then, right? Because Katie's husband was a baby at the time. So it sounds like it has been banished, which is great. But like in the first house that Axel and Melody lived in, it started out as noises or like a feeling of someone being there, but mm-hmm. not seeing it. And then it still slowly became like a full formed apparition but like it was still like kind of invisible and like the teeth were sharp and the nails were clawed right and then slowly i feel like it just got started getting stronger and stronger and was able to appear as her more until they moved and then the moving made it like use a lot of its energy to find them uh-huh. so it wasn't as strong when it found them this is a disturbing question but do you <laughs> think that there was ever something that happened maybe that Axel didn't realize it was actually the spirit. He truly thought it was. I hope not. Like a really quick, brief kiss as they're like running out the door. Some opportunity where you're not really fully paying attention. Your mind is somewhere else. You're just going through the motion. And so it would be maybe easy for it to slip in and get more power and feel confident in its choice to become Melody. Because maybe that's why I didn't give up. It was like, it works once. I can get it to work again. Oh, I hate that so much. Eek. Yeah. It does sound like something demonic that just wanted to have Axel to itself. Right. And it is odd that it continued to be like Melody, which maybe makes me think almost more doppelganger type category over demon. Because I feel like with the stories we've read and what we've heard of demons, if they're not getting what they want after appearing as like a child or or someone else, they're not attached to the form they're appearing as. That's true. They have other objectives. So – They're moving on. They're trying different things. They're not like, no, this is the one thing I have. Yeah, because, I mean, I feel like I still don't understand doppelgangers fully because, like, I feel like sometimes it could be a form of a a demon. But Mm -hmm. it does sound like this thing wanted to take over Melody's life. Yes, which makes me question what other doppelgangers have been. Do they all start as noises in this small puff of air and they just have to be around the other person, stalk them enough? To mimic them? Until they're a full person? Maybe. Or are they just like smart and can figure it out very quickly? I don't know. But the fact that this thing searched through the city and took a while to find him makes me more freaked out because I feel like – It's terrifying. Yeah. A ghost or a demon I just feel like would find you pretty quick or like come with you immediately. The fact that this thing had to look for a while. Or they would like give up and just stay at the place and find someone new. But like it was determined to have Axel. Yes. Jeez. What if – Katie and her husband in a, in a few years, something starts appearing as Katie because now it wants her husband. It's the familial curse. Uh-huh. Katie, watch out. With these goosebumps. Oh, my God. That really scared me, Sabrina. This is a whole – this is like – you know how they did Insidious 1, Insidious 2? This could be a whole franchise right here. What do we call it? The haunting of Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can work on that. Working title. Working title. All right. This is called My Lost Soulmate. Are you going to make me cry? Maybe. I don't know. This is from Ariel. 
Hi, ladies. I started listening to your podcast my freshman year of college. You really scared the crap out of me while <laughs> I drove to and from school during my breaks in the dark. But don't worry. I love it. I've been meaning to share my story of what I believe is my soulmate, either trying to find me or my soul trying to find him. It all started when I went with my grandma to get my cards read when I was about 13 years old. I thought the psychic was a complete joke, as I didn't believe in any of that stuff. But my grandma is a witch and she insisted that I should. She thought it was time. So the psychic told me some unusual stuff. How my relationship with my parents was rocky. I'll continue my education throughout my life. But one thing that really hit me was the man she saw. She told me that there was a man, but he wasn't in my life yet. He was tall, dark hair, and brown eyes. And well, I thought, okay, that's the most basic description of a man. So I brushed it off thinking that it was all fake. She told me that this man wasn't going to be in my life until later on, but he's lingering. Fast forward to last year. I was 20 years old. I usually have vivid dreams, but I really can't remember them when I wake up like most people. But one night I had this dream that was clear as day and I still can't stop thinking about it. To set the scene, I was at a house that I've never been to before. It was on the water of either the ocean or the channel that ran to an ocean. There were open windows all around the living room so I could see the water and seagulls flying around. This older couple was sitting at the table by the windows. They smiled at me and said, we're so glad you're finally here. He's in his room downstairs. I turned to the right of me and there was this open stairway that looked like it led to a small finished basement area. When I looked down at the stairs, a man with dark curly shaggy hair stood in the doorway and grabbed the frame of the door, surprised to see me as well. What is even crazier is how vivid this man was and how I could see every detail of his face, his brown eyes, his wide, perfect smile, and the clothes that he was wearing. It looked like we were in the late 70s. He was in one of those tight polos with stripes and high-waisted blue pants. The man winked at me and I ran straight to him. I hugged him. We kissed like we hadn't seen each other in so long. And then the dream ended. Then last night, I had another dream. And this one really breaks my heart. I was at a house that I'd never been to before in a location that seemed like a void almost. I walked into the door of the house and somehow ended up completely somewhere else with a bunch of souls. The souls told me that they too could walk through the door and travel to different times and places. They were walking through these doors with no problem going back and forth through time. I, on the other hand, could not figure it out. All I know is I had this sense of defeat and depression that I had to get back to someone I love. That if I stayed in this place, this person would never be able to find me. So finally, one soul told me how to get through the door. I couldn't remember exactly how, but it involved some inner chanting and visualization But I was able to get through the door and find myself with this man. And he told me that we were in the 1980s and he had dark hair, tannish skin, and brown eyes. He was wearing a striped long sleeve shirt and corduroy pants. We hugged, we kissed, but I kept telling him that the time was wrong. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So we walked through the door together and we ended up in the present day. This time he told me that it was the wrong time and the wrong place. So we walked through the door again. Suddenly we're sitting at a table trying to discuss what to do. For some reason, I did not want to walk through the door anymore. I told him that if we kept walking through the door, we would end up in two different times, separated, unable to find each other. Well, maybe we can go back to the early 1800s and start there, he said. For some reason, I then explained to him that we couldn't do that because his family was Italian. They hadn't immigrated to America yet. So we still wouldn't be able to find each other. Oh my gosh. Then I woke up and I've had this hole in my chest all day. I've yet to meet a man like this in my life. So are our souls lost? Am I trying to find my soulmate, but we're currently stuck in two different times? I hope I keep having these dreams because I need to know more. 
I need more pieces to the puzzle and I need to know when or where my soulmate <gasps> is. What do you ladies make of this, Ariel? Whoa. This is so fascinating. It's like like possibly something that in your story that that woman is going through. Maybe they're stuck in yeah. different times. They can't find each other. It's like a dating app for soulmates where you like walk through different doors and try to find your soulmate. Yeah. This is magical. I have so many questions. And Or is that just the afterlife? Are there yeah. just a bunch of doors and you can just like pop in and see what's going on in different times? You basically get to time travel in the afterlife. But she just felt this urge to go find someone specific when she was brought here and she found it. Well, what's interesting to me is because the way that I was interpreting it when you were reading is that like this man was saying that when she first saw him, they like ran to each other as if they knew each other or he ran to her as if he knew her Mm -hmm. and they kissed. So it makes me think that in the 1800s on his side of the door, they are in a romance, like they're in love together. Like she's had that love with him in the 1800s. Well, that was – no, it was first in the 70s. Oh. So that first scene was in the 70s. The next scene was in the 80s. And then he suggested that maybe they just try to reset by going back to the 1600s because the 70s, the 80s, and present day weren't working for them. But not yet. But not yet. How does that even happen? I don't know. Okay, what if – we don't understand time. No, we do not. Time works differently. Time isn't linear. There's a lot going on. There's different paths, different – wrinkles in time what if there's an alternate reality to ours right now that this guy's living in and somehow there is going to be some sort of time jump time wrinkle where neither of them realize that they were living on two different timelines or two different periods but they'll eventually jump onto the same one in this present life and both talk about these really weird (gasps) dreams that they used to have and they couldn't make sense of it i hope it kind of reminds me of outline outlander a little bit oh i've got to watch that show I'm going to. I keep you saying will. that each week. It's fine. But I seriously, you, yeah. once I have time to sit down and like actually watch TV by myself, I will. Yeah. A lot of our listeners have messaged me about it. They watch it too. Oh, yes. We were wrong with the Blarney Stone. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was wrong about a lot of things. People were like, <laughs> people were like, I kind of cringed when you were explaining it, but I'm really excited to talk about it with you. <laughs> <laughs> and someone messaged me and was like, I'm sure you've already been told, but it's not the Blarney Stone. And I was like, oh, no. Actually, no one's told me. Thanks. Yeah, it was like, it's Craig Nadune, I think. Craig Nadune. You know, I watch a lot of TV. A lot of it's also reality TV because I watch Love Island. So my brain is filled with a lot of junk, too. And you just can't trust me. Someone my brother went to school with was on Love Island. Apparently, she did quite well on the show. Who was it? I think she came in second place. Kira? He said. That sounds right. Cute little girl from Hawaii? Maybe. She went to our school, though. She went to LMU. She went to LMU? Yeah. I don't think my brother was, like, great friends with her, but she was in his grade. What? Yes. I mostly watched the UK one, but I heard the US one this season was really good, so then I'm unemployed, so I was like... Started watching that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, another fun fact. I don't know if Christian signed an NDA or something, and I'm about to break it for him. (laughs) But he did get reached out to recently about a new reality show that's developing and was like, essentially, he went through the first round of auditions, and they asked him if he wanted to continue on. And he was like, no, because timing-wise, it wouldn't work for his work, and he doesn't really have dreams of becoming an influencer, so it was enticing. Is it dating? Dating show? Yeah. I'll tell you off the call because I don't want him in trouble. But I was like, oh, when he told me what it was about, I was like, no, you should have gone on. Aww. That's so good. So if it becomes an actual show, if it actually gets like picked up and truly 
filmed, which it sounds like it is, it's going to be great. Okay. Well, good to know. I'll Once it comes to... out, I'll tell you guys what it is. Yeah, I was saying now everyone's going to be like, what is it? You're going to be like, man, Christian really should have done it. Or maybe it will be incredibly stupid. and won't be like, whew, good thing he didn't. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just got the photo booth photos from... You did? Uh-huh, from the wedding. Eek, I know send what I'm the- doing tonight. Okay, send me the ones of you and I. Oh, man, we have to post that one. Well, I was going to post it for your birthday in a couple days. Oh, perfect. Great. Okay. Because I just have the actual strip, but if we have but the if we have the four of them, yeah, downloadable image, let's do that. Okay, love it. Now you already know my birthday post. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're sufficiently distracted, let's travel backwards again real quick. Please send us all your ghost stories, your romantic ones, your horrifying ones, your sad ones, anything. Send them to us at two girls, one ghost podcast at gmail.com because we want them all. You can also support us by rating and reviewing on iTunes. Five stars is preferred. A nice one. Yep. To give us. Uh, you can also tell everybody about us. You can tweet about us, Instagram about us. You can also follow us on social media. We have Instagram. We have a Facebook group. We have Twitter. We have a TikTok. Kind of bouncing around. Find some we motivation. We a lot of things. Sometimes for some over the others. Yeah. And then we have new merch. If you haven't heard yet, a couple weeks ago we posted new merch. Bigfoot is my boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. And I have a big fort in my backyard for him. <laughs> That's our new slogan on the back of it the shirt. It kind of sounds perverted, doesn't it? Big fort. Yeah, it does kind of. I've got a big fort in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say it like that... Also, we want to say thank you to Aiden Manning at Upfire Digital for editing our podcast for us. Truly, you're just a star. I hope you know that, Aiden. That's for you because you're great. And we will see you on the other side. Very smooth.